Hello and welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we explore life in the time of Grant Morrison across the DC universe and beyond. My name's John and I'm a writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. For a brief moment there, I forgot who I was and what I do. Uh, how? Um, okay, now this is a... Okay, this is already going to be an early recording session. Hello, everyone. We're recording early. PJ was so keen, he decided to get up, what was it, like five, four hours in advance? Uh, yeah, quarter, quarter to five in the morning I got up today. Yeah, for, we, for we were fun. just discussing how PJ is, is a real-life superhero for getting up to care for his son in the middle of the night. Yeah, my son wasn't even crying. He was awake and making happy noises, but those happy noises were getting quite loud and... Little gurgles, you know, babies when they're happy. But, yeah, he's still sleeping right next to our bed. And I was genuinely worried he was going to wake my wife up as well. So I got up to try and settle him. And and then he went back to sleep and I could not. Oh, so you've got one of those little pod things that goes on the side of the bed. Is that how it works? It's just like a little travel cot that's next to the bed. But it's on... There's more space on my wife's side of the bed with the room layout, Mm. so that's where he is. So it's quite rare that he'll wake me up and not her. And since he had done it on this occasion, I was like, oh, I've got to get him back to sleep before she wakes up. Well, I I, I thank you for your your service, PJ. That's all I can say. You know, some heroes are born, some are made, and some wake up early. Some just can't sleep, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Yeah. So I mean, like, when were you just like lying awake, staring at the ceiling, or did you did were you able to like did you get up and do stuff? Do you get any of the kind of like reading in or anything like I, that? Well, I didn't want to, you know. I thought I'd like to read something, but then it's like I don't want to turn the light on because that might also wake my wife up. And but I also didn't want to go downstairs in case the baby woke up again. So <laughs> you I were basically just lay there in the dark. Oh, PJ. Oh, <laughs> what a nightmare. Oh, my God. I'd say that, you know, after about half an hour of that, I did pick up my phone and start just playing Super Mario Run on that. But <laughs> <laughs> with the sound off, of course. I mean, like, you know, whatever course of action is there. Exactly. Uh, PJ, this is our first uh, first episode back after the, after the festive season. Oh my goodness, yeah. First episode of 2024. In fact, funny enough, my memories uh, came up on uh, Time Hop today. And three years ago today, apparently, was the release of one of our Rock of Ages episodes. Yes. Yeah, I saw that as well. Yeah. Um, hard to believe, PJ. We've, we've been running so much longer than the original JLA run <laughs> actually went for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, oh, and, and we're we're hey, and we're working at at least twice as hard as Morrison did on that series. Like, you know, where's our medal? You know, that 
is not how I would put it, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where, where's our Eisner, you know, for crying out loud? I agree. We do, we, you know, we get no remuneration for this. <laughs> yeah, Morrison D- at least got paid to write JLA. Yeah, DC, we're out here ringing the bell, you know. Yeah, doing an unofficial thing that you could easily make official, but then we wouldn't be allowed to criticise anything we didn't like. Hey, um, I, uh, PJ, close your ears. DC, okay. if you're listening, I will say whatever you want me to say. You know, <laughs> just, you know, write the cheque. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> you know? oh, but I want a cheque as well, but I can't yeah. sell out like that and pretend I like things that don't. Oh, curse my moral fibre. What if they gave you like a slightly smaller cheque? I'm not saying like it would be for less. I just mean like a physically smaller cheque. Oh, I take that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like yeah, a, sl- a slightly smaller cheque if I'm allowed to say what I think. Yeah. Did you get any... Um, did did you get uh, any uh, any comic themed presents from Reserve Justice League uh, Santa Claus? So I did, uh, not DC related, but this is and it wasn't from Santa Claus either. It was from my wife. But um, Reserve bought, Justice League, your wife? Yeah, my wife. <clears throat> she, her superpower is being married to me. <laughs> uh, I um I received from her a book called The Song of Spider Man. By okay. Glenn Berger. Okay, now, Glenn Berger is a playwright, and one of the plays he wrote oh. was the smash Broadway musical Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which I saw. Um, my wife and I went what? to New York for a week about 11 years ago now, when the play was still running. What and the hell, PJ? There was there was a, a thing running on Broadway at the time that certain theatres and restaurants would do, where you could basically pay in advance for a meal and a show for really cheap as well. I think it was like thirty dollars each. And oh you'd wow! You'd get a meal and you'd get to go to a Broadway show. And I said, "Why don't we go and see Jersey Boys?" And she said, "No, you like Spider Man. Let's go see Spider Man Turn Off the Dark." And I went, "Okay." And it was awful. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen. Okay, hang on. We need to unpack this. Uh, but first, I have, a, I have a very quick question. Yeah. Because because this show is kind of infamous. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it, it literally only occurred to me in this moment. Does Spider-Man have a, have a song that is sung while he's wearing a mask? Uh, yeah. Oh. Wow. But, I, okay. So, a lot of people play Spider-Man. In the show, you've got the one guy who plays Peter Parker and occasionally is Spider-Man in the suit if the mask's not on. And then like eight stunt guys who also play Spider-Man when the mask's on. So I believe it was a stuntman on stage and the actual guy playing Spider-Man was off stage doing the singing. But could you see his chin stretching as if he was... We were too far away. Right, We we weren't close to the front of the stage. Plausible deniability, PJ. Um, But... Oh my god, it's so bad. The songs are terrible. They're by Bono and the Edge from U2. Oh god, they were. Um, the uh the the Green Goblin obviously is the main villain, but the guy who played him was in a completely different play to everyone else. He was playing it like it was a pantomime, which was I think he knew he was in something bad, and so he was kind of fun, but the costume was awful. And then you get the other villains in there, the rest of the Sinister Six, who They've basically got like big pantomime horse costumes. Even Craven the Hunter, who is a human being in a coat, was a big pantomime costume. And it was just, why have you done this? What is wrong with you? This is awful. It is so, so bad. And it shut down. The show was not running. And this is a book 
just detailing the disaster that is that musical, which I am, having seen it, fascinated by. So, yeah, I got that book for Christmas and I am looking forward to reading it. So if the person who wrote the mm-hmm. the musical didn't actually write the songs, because that was done by Bono and the Edge, um, a, a big plot man is the question? Like, just Well, I, I'm not sure how it breaks down. I don't know if this book will tell me as well, because... He was one of the writers on it, but there's also they had um, Roberto. Was it? I, I, I might pronounce this wrong. Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who was uh, wrote Spider-Man comics for Marvel in the mid noughties did oh. Sensational Spider-Man and Marvel Knight Spider-Man for a bit. Um, also contributed to the the play. Um, Obviously, Bono and the Edge do the songs. So I think there were other writers as well. I don't know exactly how it breaks down the division of labour within the writing. Um, but yeah, I think this book might give me an idea. I, uh, years ago, many, many a year ago, uh, when I was but a child, uh, or but a teenager, I suppose, uh, we had a family holiday to uh, Florida, like Orlando. And we had a choice as a family. Do we do Disneyland? which you could probably spend a whole week in, or do you do all the other random parks that are in that area? And we chose to do all the other random parks because we weren't really, you know, that fussed about Disney. And at the time, uh, there was Islands of Adventure. Oh, the Marvel Marvel Comics park. Yes, which was like, this is a post-X-Men and Spider-Man movie world, pre-Iron Man world. Yeah, yeah. I think I went in like circa 2002, 2003. I, oh. I remember the adverts in Marvel Comics at the time. Oh, and PJ, it blew my mind. Like I, hmm. I, I, I loved every second of it. Like and my brother, who was younger than me, he just had a time of his life. Because yeah. we, we were, I think as, hello everyone, this is, I'm John, the host of this podcast. Um, growing up in the UK, as PJ and I have often said, <laughs> there were certain Marvel characters which were a bit more obscure. Yeah. Like there weren't. I don't think there was many. Captain America wasn't like a household name in the UK. Well, he was one of the few sort of major Marvel characters who didn't really have his own cartoon over here, did he? No, he, he no, just, he didn't. He, he he did guest appearances in Spider Man, and that was it. It was. Yeah, I was thinking actually the other day about the Secret Wars. Uh, event they did in the Spider-Man animated show. I tell a lie, he had one guest shot in the final season of X-Men as well. There was a flashback to World War II with Wolverine meeting Captain America. But it was the season of X-Men that wasn't animated as well and looked a bit janky. It is funny how, like, you know, a series is doing really well and it's it's getting another series, so let's lower the quality, you know? Yeah, anyway. Um, But hey, but there's like a photo of my brother uh, who is, you know, a, a young boy posing with Captain America. And like with the biggest grin on his face, so we loved it. And yeah, I also yeah. I also remember that they we in addition to the rides, we went to see a like like one of those kind of shows they put on like every hour every day. Oh yeah, and it was a Spider Man like hour long or it, it didn't really feel like an hour, but like like effectively like a cheaper but by the sound of it better version of Spider Man turn off the dark <laughs> because there were songs pj but it was like a kind of uh jukebox musical so like when spider-man is fighting the green goblin uh mary jane is singing uh i need a hero 
<laughs> you, know, you know, that sort of thing. Like it. Um, wow. Yeah, and I'm not a big musical guy. Like I, I, I get quite embarrassed when I'm in a live theatre setting. It's like a nervous twitch of mine. See, but here's the thing: I, I, I do love a good musical, and there are musicals I've seen once when I was a child, like uh, Starlight Express or Blood <laughs> Brothers, where I still remember the songs from that one time I saw them. Spider Man, I saw eleven years ago, and I cannot remember a single bloody song from it. <laughs> it was... What if uh, we were to put on? Just it, what if we just played in full um, "Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me" from the Batman Forever soundtrack? Would that? That's a good song. That's a great I like song. Would that, that would, song? Would that like jog anything? Do you think I would like? No, no, because wow. that's good. That that and "Kiss from a Rose" were the best things about Batman Forever. <laughs> so yeah, it was mad. Like thinking about it, the, the yeah, they got they got some talent on that. Like turn off the dark. They invented a new villain for the Sinister Six because apparently they couldn't think of six villains to put in it. And they called her Swiss Miss. And it was a woman who was a human Swiss army knife. That's, I would have taken another pass on that. Yes. <laughs> well, the, apparently, this was the second version of the show because the first pass on the show did so badly. Well, when I went to Islands of Adventure, PJ, talking about weird iterations of the Sinister Six, <laughs> there is a Spider-Man kind of... Um, I don't know what you even call it. It's not like a roller coaster, but it was like at the time an innovative combination of like ride and virtual reality sort of thing. So oh, okay. that it was like I loved it. We went on it like multiple times. But the idea is that like you're in a cable car going through New York City and then the Sinister Six attack. Okay. And, and Spider-Man goes to save you. So like the carriage you're in is kind of like you're in like a warehouse, so everything's kind of dark and they're just playing mm. images to you. But like the Sinister Six are attacking and it was incredible. Like you feel like you're you're falling off a building. And so like, you know, you see the street rushing towards you and then they're, they're dropping the carriage a little bit as well. So it was great. But their, their iteration of the Sinister Six was like all your favourites, like Doc Ock and, oh, I don't know, Vulture and Electro. And, and then, you know, list off others. But then the sixth member was Shriek. Oh, my God. Who I believe was one of the many symbiotes that were running around at the time was it uh no she was she wasn't a symbiote herself but she was like carnage's wife in the family they made during maximum carnage wasn't oh, she really yeah um i want to say her real name is francis baron she was she was quite a big deal in a very specific period of the 90s during the clone saga and good. that era of spider-man comics good God, PJ, how how on earth did you pull that knowledge out of your head? I don't know. That's astounding. <laughs> I don't know. But basically a, a biker chick with a sonic scream, I think, wasn't she? And she thought of Carrion as her son. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's a I mean It's funny, isn't it? It's it's like um you you get it with some of the movies now, but this idea that like if you're gonna adapt something, do you go for the most iconic version? of the thing you're adapting or go or do you go for the current version of the thing you're adapting and yeah. bearing in mind that the sinister six had never appeared in a vr theme park ride before <laughs> it's weird that they were like oh who's who's relevant right now well i think there's this desire which i totally get to not have it be so male heavy mm. have some women in there and i would say shriek is a much better pull than bloody swiss miss your own invented character you know shriek at least comes from the comics oh, uh, yeah i remember um you know obviously like 
um, we've gotten quite used to, for example, a um, female Doc Ock, you know, uh, particularly like post for Spider-Verse movies. I mean, that was one of my favourite reveals in that first oh, Spider-Verse movie. That so moment good. sent shivers down my spine. Oh, good God. So good. I, I, I could talk it for hours about how, how just how, how masterfully they structure a story. Um, yeah. <laughs> I will try not to. Um, but I, I remember... Um, God, I don't know if it was the very late '90s or even the early 2000s, very early 2000s. But do you remember like the resurrection of Doctor Octopus? Yeah, because he'd been technically dead for a while. He'd been he? killed by Kane. Yeah, was it Kane? Oh God! Wow. Mm. And I remember getting a random issue of Spider-Man, which was the whole process of the the resurrection of Spider-Man. And there was a you probably know this better than I would, PJ. There was a separate female Doctor Octopus running around. Dr. Carolyn Trainer, the daughter of Seward Trainer, she came al- along during the Clone Saga and was just Dr. Octopus in the comics until they brought Otto back, yeah. Ah, there you go, PJ. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I, I remember... Sorry, just hello, everyone. Welcome to the Spider-Man podcast. Um, <laughs> I remember getting a random issue of Spider-Man as a kid, and it just really... I became quite obsessed with this issue in a way that you do when you're young. Uh, and it was during the Clone Saga, so Ben Riley was running around. Mm-hmm. In his uh, incredible costume, which I, I really love, and what his Scarlet Spider outfit or his actual no, Spider-Man costume? No, his Spider-Man outfit. It's not quite as oh, good. The, the worst Spider-Man outfit. Yeah. No, PJ, PJ, it's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. It's 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 up there with Electric Blue Superman. It's got nothing on the Ditko classic. Oh my god, it's it's, it's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> and um, it was all about finding the skeleton of a dead clone. Uh, oh, what, in the smokestack, yeah. Yes, and it was like six villains all trying to steal the skeleton for like different reasons. Yeah. And it was like Doc Ock, Beetle, Boomerang. Oh, God, maybe like Shocker? And, <clears throat> yeah. And, and I can't remember the other one, but there was a guy called The Pro. Yeah. Does that ring a bell? The yes, pro- I know the. I, I know exactly the story you're talking about, yeah. I really liked that issue. It, it was like, you know, that thing where, you're like, as a kid, you're like, I love Spider-Man, I watch the cartoon. And then you pick up, like, a random issue, like, oh, my God, what's happening? This isn't, yeah. this isn't my Spider-Man. It makes me sad that, because I had all those issues in Astonishing Spider-Man, the UK publication. Yeah. And um, I then, when I sold my comic collection a number of years ago, Ah. sold all of those as well. Um, And before Amazon killed Comixology, Mm. I had started a process of sort of rebuying all the 90s Spider-Man comics. So from the beginning of, from just before the start of the Clone Saga, really. So read the the story where the the chameleon makes uh, like clone duplicates of Peter Parker's parents. And oh. they come back. That storyline. That's where I started. So sort of going through that and Maximum Carnage up to and into the Clone Saga. And I've just sort of gotten into the Clone Saga and some of the early stuff there with Ben becoming the Scarlet Spider when Amazon ruined Comixology. <laughs> and I stopped buying the comics. I was like, ah, oh, I was enjoying that. It would have been yeah. nice to be able to revisit. And I know Marvel have done trades of the Clone Saga, like the complete Clone Saga trades since then. But I think they're quite hard to find and quite expensive now. The yeah, it's a bit like um, I think we talked about it a few a few months back. But um, me having a hankering to collect the entire Peter David Hulk run, yeah, or some of the key moments, and and just it it being a complete mess trying to yeah. trying to find any kind of 
consistent graphic novel system for collecting them. It's really weird. Yeah, it's difficult. Speaking of random graphic novels and kind of tying it to Grant Morrison, um, I have uh, purchased a couple of Morrison uh, books. Actually. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, it's, it's really weird, PJ. Uh, I had uh, I had some uh, vouchers from Father Christmas, Pierre Noel, <laughs> and I went to buy a couple of random Morrison titles. So I have ordered uh, Superman and the Authority. Oh, yes. I haven't read any of that, but I have heard good things. And Proctor Valley Road. I don't know that one at all. No, it completely took me by surprise. It was like, how is there a Morrison title from like the last year, which I haven't heard of? And um, I'm in a weird, I'm in a weird situation, PJ, because Superman and the Authority hasn't arrived yet, mm. and I look forward to reading it when it does. However, because because it's like, hey, it's Morrison, it's Superman, and it's the Authority, and I used to really like the Authority, so this will be interesting. And as we've talked about before, the Authority conundrum: what on earth are DC doing with the Authority nowadays? They don't yeah. seem to know. But then I'm getting it because it's a Morrison book. I'm still going to get it, but reading the synopsis i was like oh it's not the authority you know it's like uh do you remember the elite pj yeah it's it's like the elite was meant to be dc's version of the authority when they couldn't use the authority but this is kind of the elite now using the name the authority oh okay it's and isn't it weird. a different version of suit? Isn't it like Kingdom Come Superman or something like, or a version of, or something? It suddenly looks like he, he's meant to be like losing his powers or, or becoming weak or weakened. So he's yeah. taking more of a back seat in a way. Yeah, yeah. It, it has Natasha Irons running around as steel. Oh, okay. Which I'm generally in favour of, but it's it's um, got like Manchester Black leading it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And and the other weird one, PJ, is that Proctor Valley Road, which I believe, oh gosh, if it is an image, it's Boom Studios, mm. uh, is an original like supernatural adventure story set in the seventies. And I was like, how have I not heard of this before? And it had like you know all these you know all the credits, uh, Morrison, Child. Um, I confess, I I suddenly can't remember the name of the um, uh, the artist, which is which is bad of me. But I, I'm in a weird dilemma because I've never purchased a Morrison book and then taken so long to really just dive into it. Yeah. And and the weird thing is, is that I realised upon ordering, on, on receiving it, that it's, it's, it's co-written by Morrison. Oh, okay. So it's, it's co-written with a guy called Alex Childs, I want to say, whose credits in the back of the book say that They've mostly worked in British TV, writing oh. like Holby City. Okay. Which for anyone who's not familiar with Holby City is like an eternally running like medical drama. Yeah. And honestly, like maybe I just have like a sixth sense for Morrison stuff now. But flicking through the book, I was like, this doesn't feel like a Morrison book. Okay. I don't mean bad. Uh, or, you know, I'm just saying, like, hey, I should have to judge the book on its own merits. But you know that thing where, and I guess this is the entire reason we do this podcast, is that when you read a Morrison book, I think I could probably pick out a Morrison book in a vacuum. You know, like, even, you know, you like an all-time, you've got an all-time classic, like All-Star Superman, or you've got maybe one of the lesser outings, like Final Crisis. But 
I think if someone just gave me a random page and didn't tell me who'd written it, I could probably get the style of Morrison's storytelling. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think that's certainly true of the comic we're looking at today. This just doesn't feel like it. It's really weird. It just feels like I don't think I ever would have pegged that Morrison had worked on this book. Oh. Which makes me wonder, what was their involvement? Were they, like, concept and plot? Or, you know, it doesn't feel like their dialogue. Very strange. So I'm not saying it's bad, and I, I don't want to, like, you know, kind of, sorry, I don't want to sound negative on any, any of the creators involved. It just doesn't feel like a Morrison book, and it's, 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 a, it's an unusual situation for me. Very bizarre. Very bizarre. But that ties us neatly into another point we wanted to discuss. Ah. People who <laughs> maybe yes. didn't write the things they're credited for. I'm not saying Morrison wasn't didn't write on that book, but, you know, I'm, I'm loosely yeah. tying it in. Um, <laughs> the Glaswegian elephant in the room, PJ. Yeah, well, since we uh, recorded our last episode, this all came out online. We're only going to touch it briefly. We don't want to give it too much oxygen, but it does. I want to just put forward a small theory. Uh, Mark Miller's a jerk. Yeah. It was one of those, like, there are so few um, elder states people in comics, like, yeah. now. Like, for lack of a better word, like, you know, you have this period where you had all these greats, all these big names, and these were, like, the pantheon of comic creators. And obviously, they're all getting older now. And, you know, we're losing some of them. Yeah. And, and others are kind of going off the rails and just, you know, suddenly you realise that, like, oh, man actually they're not a great role model um and i think the weirdest one about this one was that the entire world was like oh mark miller has said something said and done and acted in an appalling way oh actually that kind of makes sense like you know no one seems surprised if you look at his work basically from go back and read the ultimates today and there is just a nasty streak in it yeah even in the very first volume of the ultimates it's there's really unpleasant stuff in there. And then you go into his creator-owned stuff, like Kick-Ass and all of that, and it is gross. None, it doesn't really hold up at all anymore. And I, I dug it when I was younger because I didn't know any better. But if, you, if I go back now, I'm like, this is just an unpleasant book. Yeah. Um, so, which is a shame. But, so yeah, it's not a surprise at all. But one thing that did come out, something that, because um, one of the people Miller sort of went for... He has since claimed, oh, I didn't realise I was looking at the wrong thing and I didn't mean it, was um, was Gail Simone. Yes. Now, here, here's the thing. We, we are going to exercise more professionalism online than Mark Miller ever has by saying that we will give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe, as he says, he didn't intend to throw Gail Simone under the bus. Yeah. I don't believe him, personally. <laughs> no, no, I, I know. But... I think this was a major walk back when he realised, oh, I've annoyed everybody. But, you know, also innocent till proven guilty, fine. That's, yeah, it is fine. what it is. We'll give, him, we'll give him that courtesy. But one of the things that came out, I think it was Mark Wade pointed it out, was that when Miller was starting out writing for DC Comics, some of the comics he is credited for were actually written in some fashion. There was some kind of an assistance or were ghostwritten, like Miller put forward the idea and then the actual script was then reworked or something by Gail Simone, Mm. who is a much better writer than Mark Miller. (laughs) That's just a fact. And it leads me to put forward my theory that that one issue of JLA we really like that was written by Mark Miller, where the JLA fight Amazon of the Amazons, (laughs) was actually written by Gail Simone. 
And that is my head cannon that I'm going to stick to going forward. Hey, and you know what? If if Mark Miller's allowed to go on bizarre tangents of the soul online, then so are we. I I, I am I am happier living in that reality than I am in giving Mark Miller any more credit than he deserves. Do you, do you know why I think Mark Miller maybe, that that issue was maybe written by Gail Simone and not Mark Miller, or that Mark Miller had the basic idea and Gail Simone did the actual script? Didn't have any sexual assault in it. <laughs> oh, yeah, funny that. Funny, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and, it, and we've often, I, I you know, I think we've, we've often said it, it is in almost the best thing, probably the best thing that Mark Miller has ever written, you know, that yeah. one issue. It has heart, it has humour, it's got nice dialogue, you know. Um, so yeah, and I and I think I think um, you know, Mark Miller and 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 his ilk in this scenario, hmm. they're very fond of saying like you know, we're just asking questions, we're just we're just exploring issues and all that. So fine, give him the benefit of the doubt. Fine, ask your questions. You know, say say the unpopular opinion. That's very brave. Um, but the particularly egregious thing is how he treated Gail Simone in this. Yes, because agreed. On the one hand, you've got this um, this idea that Gail Simone gave a lot of uncredited support to Mark Miller. Yeah, when he was starting out in the industry, helping him. Yeah, and that just makes it really bad. And, you know, knowing, not well, of course, I've met her a couple of times and spoken to her online a couple of times, but knowing Gail Simone at the tiniest bit, she is such a generous person that I completely buy that. That makes total sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%, because that is a nice thing to do. Um, so, yeah. So, if that's true, then it's really bad. If it isn't true, and even if Gail Simone never helped Mark Miller in this way, how unprofessional... Yeah. In a world when there are so few of these elder kind of elder creators anyway, it's a diminishing club every year to just throw one of your professional peers just completely to the wolves like that. Yeah. It's it's really vile. Yeah. It'd be it'd be just like it'd be like me and you, PJ, having like a this perfectly warm working relationship and then me just like randomly nailing you to a post on twitter yeah. just because it's like oh i'm just asking questions man you know <laughs> it's yeah. really gross anyway we we felt we had to bring it up because obviously miller has come up before on the podcast he's going to again because chances are we are going to be looking at books that he was involved in in some fashion or another uh we've got that whole mark wade flash run that we're talking about doing at some point which involves a morrison and miller interlude so mm. you know he's gonna come up so we felt it needed addressing well um, I think, uh, you know, I have previously started to feel bad for Mark Miller. You know, I, there are times in my life where I, I, I've been very critical of Mark Miller and then I've started to wheel it back and felt, oh, am I giving him a hard, you know, a hard time? You know, Morrison is very scathing of Miller in, in their autobiography. And I was like, oh man, kind of feel a little sorry for Mark Miller. Not anymore. Now, I, th I think, um, I think Morrison may have got Miller pegged at quite an early point. Yeah, what's the Morrison quote? Something about if if he ran into Mark Miller in Glasgow, he'd hope he was going at 100 miles an hour or something. <laughs> so yeah, so I think that should be the final word on Mark yeah. Miller. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to feel too bad now about criticising Miller down the line. No, no, not at all. Not at all. 
Yes. But back to the Morrison goodness and their their good writing. Indeed. <laughs> so, um gosh, PJ, like we it's, it's you know, what with what with the holidays and then those technical difficulties, it feels we've spent <laughs> a lot of time only covering one issue of this story. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're trying to look at a three issue storyline here and <laughs> let's do issue two. Can I say at this point, uh, I am I'm holding the trade paperback mm. in my hands, and the cover for the trade paperback is also the cover for issue one of this three-parter. Yes. And I'll just have to say, um, Ed McGuinness's artwork is delightful. Uh, it is really annoying me that Jean's um, X-shaped harness on the cover doesn't make any sense. Oh, it is misaligned, isn't it? Yeah. Shapeshifter, it's fine. Shapeshifter, it's a magic harness, it's fine. <laughs> but no, I, I want to start, you know, obviously we're looking at JLA Classified Issue 2 for anyone who hasn't caught up, uh, which um, is, again, has no credits in the story. So just to recap those, now is Grant Morrison writer, Ed McGuinness pencils, Dexter Vines inker, Dave McKay colorist, Phil Balsman letterer. Um, yeah, there we go. And... The cover to issue two is great because it's a robot version of the Justice League just sort of charging into battle by Ed McGuinness. But I, I really like the way he's done this. There, Batman is with them, but the bit of Batman's face that you can see through the cowl is in shadow. So the cover's sort of letting you believe this is a robot Batman. It's not. And they've just, they've done that really well. It's just a nice little detail on the cover that I really like, where you you be forgiven for thinking that these are all robot leaguers and that's not the real Batman. Um. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Um. I was sorry. I I just got caught up for a minute trying to think about what the robotic Aquaman can 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 do. Um. Swim and punch things. You know, talk- just like the real Aquaman. He can talk to robot fish. <laughs> what like those little toy ones you get in oh yeah yeah <laughs> wind up dudes yes yeah yeah 100 percent. He, he can just kind of infinitely generate them <laughs> um but but yeah so i guess the the story so far um jla are back pj in jla classified and you know having having kicked off the series by getting morrison involved um you know you you might be thinking oh let's get morrison back in he'll you know, sorry, they'll um they'll do all kinds of like big budget magnificent seven action. And instead, we've actually spent a whole issue with the Ultramarine Corps. And, and Batman. Corps. There's been a big chunk of Batman. Oh sorry, that's true, that's true. <laughs> Some really good Batman. Um yeah. I, I like um I like a kind of mildly frustrated Batman having to deal with things that you know he do- he doesn't enjoy the supernatural and superpowered stuff. He just has to deal with it occasionally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so uh, the Ultramarine Corps, last seen in the pages of JLA, have had a recruitment drive. They live in their giant floating city of Superbia, which is kept aloft using the unified field harmonic as controlled by Pulse 8, who might actually also now be called the Master. We're not entirely uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, he's, he's referred to as the Master in this issue as well, isn't he? Just, I think... Knight just calls him Master at one point. Can't so, tell if which it's a is, nickname or a... It's a worse superhero name, isn't it? it Pulse really 8 is. was a delicious pun, and I loved it. And it took me 12, 15 years to realise it was a pun. Until we I said I realised it. it was a pun when you told me. <laughs> we're very smart people, PJ. Yeah, we are clever. And, 
anyway, the Ultramarine Corps uh, responded to a crisis in Kinshasa. Uh, the city was under attack by uh, super super ape Gorilla Grodd and his ape troopers. Um, however, it all went to heck because um, Grodd has an ally. Uh, he he has the the infant universe of Quek 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 and. Uh, now there's a being called Nebula, Nebula, who has taken over the body of the Master, and the the entire Ultramarine Corps appear to have been taken out. So it's all looking bad. But luckily, Squire escaped. Uh, a bunch of gorillas with jetpacks and laser guns chased her, but she escaped and was able to rendezvous with Batman. And they've now gone to Venus. Uh, no, was it no, Neptune? no, Pluto, PJ. Pluto, ah, oh, Pluto, the other planet. The other planet. Back when it was still a planet. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's still a planet in my heart. And uh yeah, the 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 league are AWOL. They've gone absent. They've gone they've gone on a mission. They're not around to save the day. So Batman has to make sure that no one even suspects they're missing. Yeah. There but you go. That's why I need to try and contact the league in the infant universe of Quirbelwerk. <laughs> <laughs> so that they can come back and save the day. There we go. So yeah, what a hook. That's that's enough. That's a that's a series, PJ. <laughs> yeah, you can make that work. Well done, us. Well done. It, us. Really should, you know how much did Morrison pack into that? For, and I know I sort of used that a little bit as almost a criticism of the last issue at times, but it is impressive in its own way that they managed to pack that much into one normal sized issue of a comic. I um, I'm going to put on my academic hat for a moment, PJ, and say that this is a nice antidote to the decompressed style of storytelling that was championed in the pages of The Authority, mm. where you would have four issues where effectively nothing would happen, but it would look very pretty in the process. What I'm going to say now, this issue I think also packs a lot in, but I actually think the, the pacing and the way it's done is a lot better than issue one. I don't really have any criticism on that front of this issue at all. They are really... Um, it's kind of hit its stride now, isn't it? It's that thing yeah. where Morrison chose to introduce a lot of concepts and a lot of characters. Yeah. Even the fact that, like, it's the Ultramarine Corps, who you might already not be that familiar with, but it's not... They're different again, you yeah. know? Yeah, it's like there's already been changes since their last appearance. So, yeah, um, yeah, I liked it. I think, I think, as we said at the time, like, I think for me, it was just on the right side of being okay and balanced. And I think yeah. for you, it was just on the other side of being a bit too a bit too busy only you know i liked it and i think mostly it worked i think just the opening was a bit confused and muddled at times just because they were trying to put a bit too much in that first issue um it was as i say a very minor criticism of it i think overall it is really good and i do like it but i think this issue issue two is an improvement on that in that i don't have that criticism of this issue they get a lot in but without it feeling muddled at all i think uh so pj now's the perfect time to introduce new stuff um, oh yeah we're 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 following a character pj a new character who we're not familiar with yeah who i've looked up and this issue was their first appearance black For, death yes first and only appearance mm. i think it's important to note and that's a shame, because that's a great name for a villain, and their powers are pretty interesting too. But anyway. Yeah, so um, we appear to be, we open in a bar in what is effectively 
a very mundane, down-to-earth world. Um, maybe with some kind of like familiar-sounding news reports, kind of um, playing, playing on the TV. Uh, it's very grim and uninspired. Yeah, and a man is making notes uh, in his in his notebook and in and having a drink. Yeah, it seems to be some kind of journal he's keeping about he's he's something about no microscopic men are hidden in the weave of his tie now. So clearly, a little paranoid, um, but no one <laughs> prying his thoughts. He could stay in this universe forever, essentially. And then a woman asks him to watch her drink while she goes to the bathroom and he poisons it with yes. his finger. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun little effect. Um I should say this dude is a very is a real Bruce Wayne looking kind of guy. Like yeah. you know, sweat back hair, black suit, black gloves, very stylish. And although apparently, yes, when he kind of touches this woman's drink with his finger, you get a lovely little effect of like like a kind of skull and smoke kind of rising off it. So, so yeah, like he, his touch is literally poison. Yeah. And he keeps writing in his journal and then he seems to leave, uh, just does his, puts his journal back in his pocket. The lady comes back for her drink, but before she can reach it, a, a hand knocks it over. And a man in a suit and glasses apologizes. To, uh, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm really clumsy. Let me buy you another. And she just says, no thanks, I think I'm done. It's Clark Kent. Now, PJ, we don't know that for certain. It's, it, those are Clark Kent's eyes. And back. <laughs> <laughs> and we cut then to a rooftop where we have a bunch... Well, we have a bunch of people in silhouette, PJ. I really have no idea who they are. Well, there's enough detail, isn't there? Because Jon Stewart's lighting up his face with his ring. It's Green Lantern. You've got Flash's symbol on his chest, Aquaman's belt and collar, and Wonder Woman's tiara. So we know who it is. And Green Lantern is struggling to reconnect with their homing signal. Flash is saying, oh, I could take care of this real quick. And Aquaman says, no, 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 this is, this is delicate. Yeah, because um, it is very important, apparently, that they are not seen. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, and uh, but but Flash is aware of the urgency. Um, this is clearly uh, it, it is absolutely apparent that this is they are not in their home universe right now. But Flash yeah. is like, well, we don't know how time passes. You know, if we waste ten minutes here, we could be missing hours back in back in our universe. Yeah, yeah, and Wonder Woman says, yeah, but we can't use our usual techniques, and you know that. And Superman, who has just arrived, says, yeah, we need to use our powers precisely and discreetly this earth has developed entirely without superheroes and then we have uh jean uh the manhunter who is perhaps best equipped for going covertly around a world um and i love this um he's following black death through the subway and black death has just released um a death toxin which jean just inhales yeah. to save everyone because because he's the martian manhunter he's very powerful he is yeah and he's also trying to read black death's thoughts and he says that they're like mad dogs running through his skull and then a phone nearby rings and black death picks it up and just says wrong number and a voice on the other end just keeps saying hello and then we cut back to the dc universe and it turns out that that was the squire trying to reach the justice league as she says she nearly had something um, 
can we just talk about these opening five pages? Yes. This is really cool. This is yeah. really interesting. Um, uh, this doesn't come across when we're talking about it, but just as Watchmen works with a nine, a three by three nine panel grid, uh, Morrison and McGuinness have kind of upped the ante by going for a four by four grid on the first three pages and yeah. intense close ups in every panel. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's it's very cool. And then what I what I like then is the transition to the DCU which is suddenly a double-page spread, all of a sudden on the title page, title Master of Light. as, And it's just a spread of the squire touching the cube that represents the universe of Quick Quick and saying she nearly had something while Batman just looks on. It's not, it's not something that would normally be a double-page spread, but the juxtaposition with the previous three pages is just a really cool way of transitioning and, and letting you know what's going on and also sort of showing how the you know how small that where the league is compared to where batman and squire are this is the kind of thing that like this is you know because comics are often like you know people struggle to go oh comics they're like a movie or they're like a book you know but this is comics being truly just comics this is the kind of like multi-level storytelling that you only get in sequential art like yeah, because yeah, as you said, PJ, it's like we're literally in a smaller universe, so everything is is cramped and 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 tiny and less fantastic. And then you just get this kind of, as you say, like bombastic double page spread of an almost mundane scene, but it's yeah. larger than life. Like it's like the DC universe is almost bigger and 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 more vibrant than anything in the real world. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's really well done. It's brilliant. Uh, it's also a recurring Morrison theme of a. Well, effectively, our world, because Quebec is our world. It's the real mm. world. We are in Quebec right now. Um, the idea that it's we are the oddity, that like every world of imagination and creation is wonderful and brilliant, but the mundane real world where we live in is somehow inadequate or def- inadequate or deficient in some way because we don't have um, thunderbolts on every street corner and, you know, capes in the sky yeah like, oh it's so it's so oh, I, lo- I love this stuff pj <laughs> yeah it's great it's oh, great and, and also pj a, a quick question for you yes if this is the real world if this is the world of Q, you know Quebec, our world when clark kent accidentally knocks over this woman's drink and then offers to pay for a replacement the woman seems kind of like a little scunned by his presence do you think that she on a cultural level is thinking is that clark kent oh that hadn't occurred to me but that kind of makes sense of her reaction doesn't it it would be like because if you if you met a guy in real life who was like who 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 was like clark kent you would you would go hang on a minute well that's it i think clark kent is probably the only secret identity that is as iconic as the superhero themselves. You know, you've got the slick back black hair, the glasses, and then usually a, like a blue suit and a red tie combo. Mm. That is Clark Kent. So if you see someone dressed like that, you go, that's Clark Kent. You know, there's sort of no definitive Bruce Wayne or Peter Parker or anything like that. They just wear clothes and wander around. But Clark Kent is very distinctive. So mm. that's a really good point. <laughs> I also I like the idea 
that even though this little interaction is only like four pages, I like the idea that Clark or Superman has such a kind of like inherent goodness about them that when Morrison's spent like a few panels showing how kind of horrible our world is, where it's all kind of like murder and misery and cruelty, mm. it's almost like this little encounter with someone who might just possibly be Clark Kent has almost like kind of touched this woman in a way she can't exactly vocalize. Just like, it's almost like, I think if, if you, if Superman actually popped into the real world, I think it would be incredibly moving in a weird way because he yeah. would just be so decent. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, I'm probably reading too much into this, but yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun few pages. I don't think you are. It's Morrison. So I... <laughs> it's Morrison. <laughs> this is what they do. Peter. Yes. <laughs> Anyhow, sorry, enough about that. Um, Beryl's hanging around. Literally. Literally. Yeah, she's on a bunch of wires. She's got her hands in quick, which is has a lovely sort of visual to it with the universe sort of... It's a cube other than the corner. She's got her hands in where it's sort of splurging around a bit. And I wonder if aliens living in that corner of the universe are like, oh my God, these hands are huge. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like The amount of times I've read this, I somehow never picked up that Quek is going all kind of squidgy in the corner there. <laughs> yeah. But at this point, Batman is also using this opportunity to learn more about Beryl's past, saying, you know, they told me you were educated on the streets. But is that Princeton? I will say, Squire's dialogue in this scene annoyed me a little bit. It sort of got a bit too... trying too hard to be, like, a weird... English person in an American comic, which Morrison should be better at. It's it's a bit um it's a bit apple and pears, isn't it? Like it's put your right off. Oh, cool blind cool blimey, Batman. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a right royal mix up down in and, here. This here anyway, universe of QEC. I reckon if I heat things spelled <laughs> F-I-N-G-S. <laughs> like it's a bit a bit bit too much, I think, there, maybe. Maybe so. I wonder <laughs> if um Yeah. I we I know Morrison has a real affinity for for Nighting Squire. I don't think any human being on the planet has ever talked like Squire does. Here. No. no. <laughs> but yeah, so basically then she she talks about things they faced as well. Um the the Metalex, which I assume is the, the Daleks, isn't it? That was the Well Well, PJ. Well. Morrison has referenced the Metalex in multiple appearances of Nighting Squire, mostly in the pages of Batman Incorporated. Okay. They are like a sentient race of alien JCB diggers. Oh. Yeah, that turn up to like terraform planets. We see one in the Tower of London super prison in the second volume of Batman and Robin. Uh, okay. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, just had to put that out there. No, that I, I assumed it was a, a take on the Daleks, but uh, maybe, yeah, more. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, and then she also refers to Old King Cole. Yes, which... and, he's, and he's the villain in that same story. Brilliant. And Spring-Heeled Jack, which we talked about a lot last episode. Yes, who I believe is the illegitimate child of the royal family who yeah. killed Cyril's dad, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And Old King Cole, PJ... Uh, has no superpowers, but is a uh, Geordie crime lord uh, who uh, has a bunch of um, <laughs> uh, chimney sweep themed henchmen. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> in that story, when Dick Grayson Batman comes to Britain 
uh, to team up with Nighting Squire. Uh, they get caught in the middle of a gang war between Old King Cole and the Pearly Court, which is a London-based uh, crime family based on the Pearly Kings and Queens. I really need to go back and read all of the Morrison Batman run, don't I? I mean, like, if only for to get you a fix of Nighting Squire, basically. I, I sort of checked out after R.I.P. because I didn't enjoy R.I.P., but... It sounds like everything that came after it was much better. There are, there are like, it, it, it's, it, 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 bit hit and miss, but like, I think overall, there are some really lovely bits in it. Mm. I think uh, Dick Grayson and um, Damien as, as um, uh, Batman and Robin, that particular period is a lot of fun. I, I need to check it out. I'll get me some trades. Yeah, yeah, treat yourself, PJ. Treat yourself. <laughs> um, but yeah, so after this kind of very, very uh, British uh, kind of uh, little conversation, um, Batman gives us uh, a little recap by saying, uh, your colleagues in the Ultramarine Corps are about to be hijacked into service as terror weapons by Gorilla Grodd. So while you contact the JLA and tell them that Batman says it's urgent, I have to make it look like they never went away. Yeah, and then he approaches. He's got loads of robots. <coughs> sorry, loads of robot Supermans, Superman, Supermans, Supermans. Yeah, and uh, he says like, "Call me if you need me." And then says, "Knight to pawns one through five. So because he's the Dark Knight. So there, there you go, PJ. There you and go. these robots are his pawns. And he basically turns on five of them and tells them to follow him. Yeah, and what would it not be six? Yeah, unless. One, two, three. Hang on a minute. We're yeah, both, we're no, both no, counting. Hang on. Yeah, six. Yeah. Maybe he didn't want to bring robot Aquaman. Maybe <laughs> like, so, what are you yeah. Even for? But um I mean, I think the most time I've spent with a Superman robox is in All Star Superman. Like I it's it's just a canonical thing that Superman has has robot duplicates running around. Yeah. And yep. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, so Batman. I, I quite like this that like um I do like the aspect of Morrison not just having Batman create robots from scratch. I just like the idea that yeah, if Superman has a bunch of robots, we know that's a thing, that it would make sense for Batman would have access to them. Yeah, he co opts some of them. And Superman probably hasn't even noticed. Hey, and I, I just want to say, PJ, a a rare moment where uh I, I love that I love the relationship between Batman and Beryl. Like they yeah. genuinely seem to get on. I think Batman gives his his Robins a harder time than he gives Squire. And but I also like that um Beryl just goes, Look after yourself, Batman. And Batman, rather than going, huh, with his little HH, goes, heh, and has a little smile in the corner of his eye. Tiny little smile, yeah, but it's it's nice. And he yeah. just says he's gonna leave her the flying saucer and then he <laughs> activates the boom tube glove. Uh, it's nice to see Batman smile occasionally. Yeah, for sure. He likes working with professionals. I think we've 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 seen that. Mm. Yes. Um, but PJ, uh, back to Grodd, who's um eating someone, e- eating someone's leg. Yeah, eating a super person. Uh, hopefully not a super person we were especially attached to in this moment. Well, I. I wondered because there's mention of Jack O'Lantern having a healing factor, and that looks like the same color as his boots. So has Jack O'Lantern regrown a leg? Well, I don't know. He seems to be having. It seems to be taking him a little while to regrow a, a few broken ribs. Um, 
There is actually the remains of a costume that is also purple oh, on that's the true. floor, which looks a bit like one of the. Oh, isn't it one of the Legion of Superheroes runs around like with a purple costume? I assume it's not them. Yeah, it looks vaguely like Cosmic Boy. I'm just going to assume this is a nameless superhero created purely to die and get eaten. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so as Batman booms out and um, Grodd just eats a, a superhero, Nebula, the Huntman, the Huntsman, sorry, I said that weird, uh, Nebula, <laughs> the Huntsman, says, hmm, I thought I heard thunder, cosmic thunder. And Grodd, who's also now got like a paper crown on his head, which is delightful. <laughs> Says, have you ever eaten superhero? It's tough, but it's worth the effort. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, uh, Neb- Nebula, I'm just going to call him Nebula. The, Nebula. The, the Neb- Nebula. Nebula. Uh, has, uh, you know, says that they, they never eat their prey. But uh, the last of the Ultramarines have kind of taken, they've, they've holed up in the armory. And with them is the one I seeded my present form in. Yeah, we know who that is. That's fine. And then he command. He says that the spine riders of the Shida will take control of the rest. Oh, Morrison, I love it when you just throw in random phrases like that. And it, it you know, pays off. We, we do see who the spine riders of the Shida are later on, but it's like, I want to know more about that. Well, <laughs> here's the mad thing, isn't it? Because this is basically a prequel to Seven Soldiers of Victory. Yeah. Um... I have no idea what you suppose what you were supposed to think at the time while while you were reading this because it's like oh spoilers there's little fairy people that ride on people's necks and control them but also yeah. like Nebula is just like a man made of star stuff he's like a living universe so ugh. like <laughs> oh I mean Morrison had it all planned out I I think yeah it just wow it's a bit left field yes <laughs> yeah and. Nebulo is like, I don't need your savage telepathy, Grodd. And Grodd just says, well, it has its uses. Take this atomic sumo, for instance, talking about Goraiko. And says his brain is a simple receiver and without its human operator is no match for Grodd's savage telepathy. I love just a little turn of phrase here, which is just very Morrisonian for um, uh, where Grodd says, I have only to master my roaring thoughts, extend, and the monster is mine to direct. Roaring yeah. thoughts, PJ. That's that's nice. I like that. And very grod. Very grod. Very grod. And again, said it before, I'll say it again. None of Morrison's villains sound the same. No. They all have a very unique way of speaking and thinking, and that is very good. <laughs> Do we know who Goraiko's human operator is? No, because as far as I'm aware, Goraiko was only created for the Ultramarine Corps. Yeah. And and previously it only appeared in one panel at the end of the uh, original Ultramarine story. So, yeah, you would be forgiven for having no idea what was going on here. (laughs) But then we we cut to the Ultramarine Corps, holed up in the armory, and Jack's sort of clutching his arm, is beaten up by sodden gorillas. (laughs) And uh, two of the original, uh, the founding members of the Corps are here. We haven't seen much of 2D, but she's back. Uh, and it, yeah, and again, it is funny that like we spend kind of so little time with the core members of the team. We spend more time with Knight and uh, Jack, really. Yeah, yeah. But I think 4D, it sounds like she's sort of 
Oh, sorry, 4D, yeah, not 2D. Yeah, 4D. She's ranks above them because they're sort of reporting to her and she's like, oh, if I hadn't been doing inventory on the weapon stash when the station went down. And Knight's putting his armor back on and is is like, you know, this they were able to take down Goraiko. And 4D is like, well, let's deal with this rationally. They've smashed Scott's Warmaker armor, but he doesn't have a body, so he might be fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, um, I was never entirely certain how bad it was for... Um... Was he called Tom Scott Sawyer? That was his name, wasn't yeah, he? Scott, Scott Sawyer. Sawyer. I was never sure how bad it was for Scott to not have a body. You know what I mean? Like, if he doesn't yeah. have the war maker, is he in? Is he in danger of like fading away or something? Or is he just yeah. kind of running around as an invisible dude? <laughs> I like the idea of him just running around like an invisible dude, going tee, <laughs> <laughs> causing mischief. <laughs> Um, and, um, the master or pulse eight, he'll always be pulse eight in my heart, um, seems a little distracted because, um, Knight is like, Hey dude, you can literally type. I'm good with guns. You can literally type onto the keyboard of being the keyboard of reality. So, you know, could you maybe lend a hand perhaps? Yeah. But pulse eight. I'm not calling, you know, the master's a Doctor Who villain. I'm not calling him the master. <laughs> um, just, just sort of stutters, and then Knight's like, "All right, well, let's go blow up a few bad monkeys." <laughs> um, and this, like, this eternal bromance between Cyril and Jack here. Um, and we also discover that Jack has a healing factor, which uh, I don't think was mentioned in the previous episode. Is no, you? I don't think so either. No, so. He basically says, like, you know, well, you know, your, your, your wee lass Beryl ran for help, did she? How far do you think she got? And Cyril says, well, she's worth three of you in a fight. So she won't let us down. Yeah. yeah. And he says, and I'll tell you what I think this is all about. And he points out that there are 30 freelance superhumans on the the station on Superbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a miracle no one's tried to take control of them before. So... Jack says, well, maybe they're just waiting for the JLA to be out of the way when they try it. Yeah, I mean, like, bless them, the Ultramarine Corps are presented as being, like, maybe slightly less than efficient, you know? But they're not complete... They're not idiots, basically. Like, they're they're they're, they're smart enough to realise when they've screwed up, basically. Yeah, and I think there is a recognition as well that we are not the JLA. We'll try and take care of things the JLA won't or can't in ways they won't or can't. But at the end of the day, the JLA is, are the big hitters. One thing that's kind of interesting is that um, Cyril comes across as very um, decisive in this yes. story, like kind of like a natural born leader in a way. And I think in every other appearance, um, Cyril's been a bit more kind of like easygoing. Like a bit more kind of like very happy to kind of take sit in the back seat sort of thing. Is is that because in his other appearances he's he's, surra- he's directly dealing with Batman? That's a that, well, PJ. That's a very good point, isn't it? Like, I think Cyril is is humble enough to realize that like he's no Batman. Yeah, but obviously Batman isn't around. He's here right now, so he's got to take charge and. And go right. I'll, I will be Batman. So is the idea, PJ, that even if you are a, well, I don't mean to be cruel to Cyril, but maybe if you're a C-list Batman 
um, that skill better than having no Batman on your team. Yeah, let's let's face it. In the DC universe, it goes Batman, and then like Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash. They are B-list Batmans, and then everyone else is below them as the C-list Batmans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do love the idea that there's like this kind of meta thing that like if you were trying to set up a new superhero team in the DC universe tomorrow, you'd probably want a speedster. You'd probably yeah. want someone who's strong and can fly, and you'd probably want a Batman. Yes. You know, some kind of Batman just to help out. Yes. Yeah. Um, but sadly, despite Cyril's uh, decisiveness, um, things fall apart and Pulse 8 is like, look, put the guns back. I've been trying to resist, but when they dig in their spurs, you have to obey. And we turn around and there is a small medieval fairy riding on his neck. <laughs> it's really- it's so bizarre it just i mean i know we've had nebulo talk about the spine was it the spine riders of shida um but when you then just have this moment where you see one it just feels like it's come from somewhere completely different and it's like wait what what's going on now but i love it yeah it's wild and it's brilliant I think the, the 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 strange thing is is that like when you read Seven Soldiers of Victory, and you learn what the Shida are, then then them having this whole kind of like fantasy fairy aesthetic makes sense. Um, it's Nebula who's like the odd one out because yeah. if Grodd had teamed up with Nebula, the the cosmic man, and all of Nebula's minions were like little star creatures you know what if they were starfish scarrows or if they were little cosmic bugs that sat on your neck i'd be like okay that kind of makes more sense starro would make total sense starro would have control of a starro starro would make brilliant sense in this context but 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 no um nebula has a bunch of tiny medieval fairies basically uh well maybe maybe morrison went do you know what i've already done starro and i've done starro perfectly so (laughs) twice (laughs) <laughs> yes, true, true, actually. So let's uh, let's do something else. Yeah, so um, so sadly, uh, he's got a fairy on his neck. And um, yeah, and he does have a cosmic keyboard. So things are going to go to heck pretty quickly, I would say. Yeah, so Cyril shouts for 4D to flatten down and cover him. But before anything else can happen, Pulsate has rewritten reality so that 4D has got rapid tumour growth all over her body and she's going to die in exactly 30 seconds unless they do what he tells them. Yeah, and, you know, I think um, Cyril and Jack realise that they really can't do do anything. There's nothing they can do to stop him, so they, they surrender. Yeah, yeah, and they, they walk out of the, the armoury, Grod's there, and he says, he says, you know, it's the ape part of your brain that makes it so easy to push you. We apes evolved from humans, you know. Darwin lied to hide the horror of his true discoveries. <laughs> and I, it could go either way here. Grodd could well be telling the truth in the DCU. Yes. But also, Grodd is just such an arrogant, he's one of those really fun villains who's so arrogant and dangerous that he might have just made this up completely, but 100% believe it as well. Yeah, I mean, like, Grodd is... is- really scary in this story mm. like really scary um i mean you know the the absurd genius of having a character that is a psychic gorilla 
is a lot of fun in itself. But yeah, here we have a terrifying deranged Grod, which, um, yeah, I mean, as case in point that Cyril points out that like there were hundreds of men, women and children living on Superbia who, you know, were refugees, people they saved from oppression. And we just get this horrible close-up of Grog's yeah. face. He just goes, I can assure you they won't be oppressed ever again. So this is where I'm going to point out, I'm sorry to go back to it, but the difference between Morrison and Miller. Morrison is subtle with this. You know exactly what's happened, but you don't have to see it. Mm. Miller would have shown you this in all its graphic, evil, horrible glory. And actually, PJ... He did, because well, yeah. in the Authority, the last Miller story, basically this exact same thing happens. Like, the the bad guys take out the carrier, it crashes, and um, the the carrier had, like, a, like, thousands of refugees living on it. And they literally just have a scene where, like, the new evil Authority, sorry, spoilers are just basically going like, oh, we've got all these filthy dead refugees around. And you just see, you know, it's it's, it's, exact, yeah, it's exactly what you just said, PJ. Yeah, whereas Morrison doesn't need to show us that and we don't need to see it. It is enough to have Grodd with this grim smile on his face telling you they won't ever be oppressed again. And it's yeah. one panel just as effective without being disgusting. There you go, everybody. <laughs> effective but not disgusting. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that is the... Miller has never managed that. There we go. <laughs> um, but then we get this sinister, like, I, I find this kind of creepy, actually. Um, we get Flo walk up, and he has also been infected by, by the spine riders. But, of course, he doesn't have a spine because he's, he's, he's made of liquid. So there is one just floating inside him. Yeah, and what I love as well is you've got this tiny little sprite. It looks like it's dressed in leather. And even though it's so small, McGuinness has done this really well. You can see this cruel smile on its face. And just the little, just a couple of little lines McGuinness has used to do that. And then the inking sells it perfectly as well. But it's this is an art team working at the peak of their powers. Yeah, the art is great here. I, I, I don't think I've ever given Ed McGuinness the time he deserves. Like, this is really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and I, I I remember since I read Salem's Lot as a kid, um, I've always been kind of creeped out by like this kind of invasion of a body snatchers style yeah. everybody being slowly converted to the other side. And it's not they're not zombies. They seem to still retain their personality, but they just Yeah. Yeah, and it's really creepy because like Flo's like, I'm sorry, Cyril, they got me too. The parasite's got all of us, but there's this big evil grin on his face. It's it's the grin is very Tim Burton. Mm. If you know what I mean? Visually, it looks like something from the Nightmare Before Christmas <laughs> with the eyes and the mouth. But yeah, it's it's beautiful. Oh god! And then this scene where basically Flo just grabs Cyril and basically just like pulls him into his watery chest. Yeah, because we do we do see in in the on this page previous page there is a second. Spine Rider inside flow, the shadow of it, and he yeah he pulls Cyril's face into him, and it just swims towards Cyril's head, and yeah, <clears throat> it's it's a grim grim scene, but really well done. And and Grodd says, "You are weapons now, not people. Your station will be the mobile capital of a simian empire." <laughs> <laughs> 
delivering my creed to all the nations of man. Perhaps I'll let some of you live and breed in zoos. Perhaps not. Yeah. Wow. And, and then Grodd continues monologuing as Cyril is taken over. He says, I will live to see man's civilization wrecked in the dirt and history rewritten by an ape. As a bat plane fly, flies in and Batman just goes, Philistine. <laughs> and also, and this, PJ, is, this is where the Batman theme kicks in for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, two things, PJ. One, and I, 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 I swear, I, I think I missed this on previous read-throughs. We briefly see an invisible man kind of yes. standing behind Grodd or in a different panel to Grodd. It's kind of it's a little unclear here, but there's an invisible man mentioned. Remember that. Yeah. And also Batman appears to be flying like a B-wing bomber, like yeah. <laughs> like a Lancaster bomber, like this massive plane here. I love it. I yeah. think it's great. It's a really cool design because it's still recognisably a bat plane while also being this big bomber type thing. And um, and the the bat bomber is releasing big bat bombs, the triple B, as Grodd picks up a big gun and starts screaming, without your Justice League, Batman, what will you do? And then Ed McGuinness just gives us a wonderful panel of Batman leaping to the floor with his cape outstretched behind him and some silhouettes flying behind him in the sky. But it's just a perfect Batman shot. As Batman hits the ground, uh, accompanied by the League, PJ. Yeah, you've got Flash, Aquaman, Green Lantern, Superman and Jean flying in behind him. He gives Grodd a final warning and Grodd sort of just looks confused and says, "Did, did Black Death fail us? And then Batman starts barking orders and the League tear into the jetpack apes. Uh, yeah, and then we have this amazing panel, which is kind of like blinking, you'll miss it, as um, Flash tell, uh, sorry, Batman tells definitely Flash to super speed, disarm. And then we get, again, blinking, you miss it, Grog's gun is reduced to like a hundred neatly organized pieces in the air. It looks like a diagram it behind does. him of how the gun is built. It's 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 awesome. As as Batman just kicks Grodd in his ever-loving ape face. Yeah, and again, another brilliant panel from from Ed McGuinness of, of Batman fly kicking Grodd in the face. It's it's fantastic. I, I, I'm not an artist. I am I am in awe of people who can even draw a recognizable human being. Yeah. Um of all the artists in the world who can draw recognizable human beings, I don't think a great many of them have thought about what it would look like when Batman kicks an ape in the face. And <laughs> and yet McGuinness could draw so many human express sorry, animal expressions on an ape. It's it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, this is I think McGuinness for a while was looked at as a superstar artist, but I, I don't feel like people use his name enough in that context anymore. And this is just showing that they should be. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, but um, it's not just Grodd that the League have to contend with. It's um, the mind-controlled um, Ultramarines. Uh, so we see yeah. Flo having a rematch with Aquaman, and we have Goraiko just sending atomic breath over Jean as they do a, a kind of um, chemical equation, which I don't think is a real chemical equation. I, I think we, these are fictional elements right yeah. now. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But then the next panel, 
Superman is punching Goraiko out, but the knight has leapt into the battle and has basically destroyed Aquaman in one hit. This is where we get a close-up of Aquaman's robot face, and it's kind of falling apart now. Yeah, they're robots, everybody. Sorry, spoilers. Um, and Pulsate goes, wait, not human. Machines. Fakes. Cut. Edit temperature. And by tapping away on his cosmic keyboard, uh, he freezes uh, Robot Superman and Robot Jean, and they just collapse into many, many pieces. Yeah. So those robots that were the main focus of the front cover of this issue, three pages. Yeah, that is, that's that's all you get. That's your lot, really. I kind of love it when a comic cover missells <laughs> what you're getting inside, in a good way. There are yeah. comics that have done it, and it's it's bad. Two in particular, I think, of... There's an old Spider-Man issue where the front cover is Spider-Man fighting Sabretooth. And while those characters are both in the issue, they don't actually meet. <laughs> um, it's Captain America who has a fight with Sabretooth. And then there's the JLA Metal one-shot, which was basically the Justice League fighting the Doom Train from Final Fantasy VIII on the cover. And then the issue itself is just Cyborg having an existential crisis, and I was very disappointed. I I haven't even scratched the surface of of the whole metal saga. Like, um, no, I, I mean that's the only issue I read because the cover sucked me in because I was like, the JLA are going to fight an evil giant metal train. Yes, and then that does not happen anywhere in that comic. Lies, PJ. Lies. Yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, sadly, uh, sorry, I I, I miss I misspoke. Uh, it wasn't just. Superman and John, it's it's all the leaguers. They've all been kind of uh dismantled, basically. Yeah. But hey. I, I like Batman realizing it's gone wrong with just a sarcastic that went well. I mean Grod's unconscious, but or down briefly, but yeah. <laughs> hey, and actually, PJ, sorry, I just had a, a brainwave speaking of um weird cover discrepancies. Mm. When Batman said when Batman said to the robots, five of you follow me. It's because there are only five of them. There is yeah, no, no Wonder Wo- Woman robot. There's no Wonder Woman robot. There so, is on the cover, but there's not in this sequence. So I think that was creative license on the cover. Yeah. Because maybe they didn't want to have to explain why there was like a kind of Superwoman robot lying around or something. Yeah. I think that's probably it. So Yeah, almost certainly. Um, but yeah, so uh, Batman's down, PJ. Batman's, Batman's being scabbed by Nebula and electrocuted. Yeah. Yeah, and Grodd says this This proves there's no league to stop us, just Batman and his clockwork men. I've always wanted to meet Batman, but I don't know where to begin. And then you get a shot of the assembled, mind-controlled Ultramarine Corps, uh, including now Vixen and the guy with the horns and a big black cat man. Yes, <laughs> I'm trying to remember, because um, a lot of these are ex-members of the Global Guardians, Yeah, yeah. I want to say, and I... Oh gosh, I, I think there's Kid in Parlor. Uh, I can't remember Olympian because only because I know he pops yes. up. Yeah, he so, pops up again. Yeah, it's kind of odd that there, as we are told that there are like thirty superhumans living on Superbia, and we don't really spend a lot of time with with all of them. Well, there's probably... eleven here, and plus Warmaker one uh, would make twelve, and then Grod's eaten the rest. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Poor, poor, poor people. Um, then, oh no, wait, no, PJ, there are more because I think we see a few more in the next issue. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, the point is they're, they're supporting characters, so don't don't worry too much about them. Yeah, and then 
Grodd just shouts that he's these are his slaves, his world, this world is defenseless, go forth like thunder, destroy. And then we cut back to the infant universe of quick, quick, quick. And you can tell because we're in tiny panels again. Tiny panels for a small universe. For our small world. And I mean it's it's funny in a way because I guess like Black Death as a character, like is seems like a, a minuscule threat compared to the league. Um but again, left on his own, he could probably cause untold damage here. Yeah. But the league just walk up and uh they go, Black Death, please don't hurt these people. Uh this place it's been damaged enough. So Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. We have no super people, sadly. Yeah. But Black Death is on the phone and he says someone is talking and when you were a kid, didn't you ever want your own little world with little people you could just torture? <laughs> and then he, he 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 then says to them, admits I was only a diversion anyway. By the way, who am I talking to? And Beryl just goes, The squire, you're nicked, mate. <laughs> and and I love the idea that Black Death just goes quietly, but just goes, I think it's for you and hangs yes. hangs the phone over uh to Superman. Who? Yeah, and Beryl, Beryl just says, uh, is that the infant universe of Quick? And Superman's like, who is this? <laughs> but Wonder Woman realises pretty quickly, she's like, home in on that signal, Green Lantern. And then we, we cut to sort of a, a transitional shot from one universe to another, a close-up of Beryl as she says, they've turned super people into terrorist weapons, Gorilla Grodd, and Batman said it was okay. And then you get silhouettes of the League... Superman says, sounds like we've been away too long. Boom tube engage. Four panels of boom. And then we got back to Nebulo, who's got a skull in his hand. Yes. And is this a key point of dialogue here, John? I come to strike down the seven. It's a massive key it's a massive key piece of dialogue, PJ. Thought so. Yeah. <laughs> Which would only become relevant a few years later when 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 everybody who read this went on to read Seven Soldiers of Victory. Yeah. Oh, Grant, seeding your little stories. I love it. <laughs> um, I, I, I won't go on too much of a Seven Soldiers diversion, but I do love the dialogue. There's a big conversation in that about how all the best teams have seven members and well, that it, it's madness to go into battle with only six. <laughs> Fair. But also, I love then the next panel, because you, 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 know, you could easily skip over that, because the next panel is, is Grodd has Batman on a spit. Yes, um, you know, he says, what, what's a victory without a feast? Celebrate, Grog's day has come. Now bring the human age to its bloody conclusion as the mind-controlled Ultramarine Corps blasts off into the sky. And then we get like a full like splash page, just orange background, boom tube, boom, and the six members of the League flying out of it. The first time you see them clearly... In these two issues is this last page of issue two, the Justice League in all its glory, minus Batman. Uh, and I don't think anyone's even saying this. This is just a caption to say <laughs> end of the issue. It says, sorry, Grodd, it's not over until the world ends. And that's just like, and I mean this in the nicest way, that's just like pure comics silliness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's very sort of 60s comic book fun, isn't it? Oh, my God. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like... Um, like, it's like, Flash, I love you, but we only have... 14 hours to save the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes! Uh, and, and yeah, and, and you rightly point out, PJ, because I was, I was going to mention it at the time, um, it's a very small 
detail. But yes, you you never get a clear look at the league when they're in Quek. Like, it's all shadows and extreme close-ups, and then this panel is is Aquaman's quite small in the background, but that you know it's fine. We know who he is. He's got you his get, belt, PJ. Yeah, exactly. But you get really good looks at, at at all of them just flying into their universe to save the day. Whoa, So again, it's 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 a Justice League book with no Justice League. But hints of Justice League. Hints of Justice League. And I think this is like how characters can cast a a long shadow. They can have a big presence without being present. Yeah. And I, and I think this is Morrison realizing that. And it's like, I don't know. It's almost like never give never give the audience what they want. And it's yeah. it's, it's it's a it's JLA. The book is JLA classified. The JLA aren't in it much, but I don't feel shortchanged by that because, as you say, Batman's there, but also the League themselves just cast a shadow over the story. Yeah, it's 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 great actually. I think it it shows a confidence in storytelling and it shows a familiarity with these characters to know. Yeah. I I mean, frankly, I think it's it's a kind of brilliant, subversive way to start a new Justice League title by just not by having them be absent but and the point is their absence so and i think there's there's an idea as well because classified is an anthology book that it could take more risks and more chances and creators had a bit more freedom and leeway to do what they wanted mm. um and i think in in morrison's case that's tell this ultramarines story with nebulo as well and and set up future projects but without forgetting that the book is called jla classified so the league are there but just not physically very often. I, I like it, the I like the idea of Morrison getting a call from DC editorial, going like, "Hey, hey, Grant, will you come back and you know weave your magic one one more time for our new Justice League title? You know, be be our superstar writer to kick it off." And they're like, "Yeah, of course, of course." You know, in a heartbeat. Uh, can I do a weird story where the league kind of aren't really in it, and we focus on? the Ultramarine Corps, which no one will remember from my run on JLA. And they're like, yeah, of course, of course, Grant, whatever you want. Can I also make it a backdoor prequel to like this weird Seven Soldiers of Victory story I'm working on? It's like, yeah, of course, Grant. Yeah, why not? You know, come, come on in. <laughs> which is just the freedom Marvel didn't give them. So, yeah. And, you know, DC knew what they had, didn't they? They... They were like, let you. Know, we just gotta wind Grant up and let them go. <laughs> I know, I know, and it, it might be a case of like editorial, like, look, I don't understand everything you're doing, but like, it seems to work. So, yeah, have fun, I guess. Um, I really like this issue, PJ. I, I had a lot of me fun too. here. Me too. It's yeah. brilliant. It's brilliant. And, and I tell you what, one thing it's done that has surprised me is it's kind of made me want to revisit and attempt to reappraise Seven Soldiers of Victory, because I didn't get on with that when I first tried to read it. Um, I read the whole thing. I don't remember much about it, but this has made me think, I need to try that book again. Yes, it's... it's Yeah, it, it, it's funny, like... Seven Soldiers of Victory feels like exactly what it is, which is oh, a, an interesting experiment in disjointed storytelling it's yeah. like the idea that could we tell a bigger story across multiple parts without any of our characters meeting and they're all in different genres and they're all very different styles and themes 
Um, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's a little messy, but again, maybe by intent. And I, I there's a lot to like in there. But yeah, agreed. I, it, it's not going to be the story that converts a non-Morrison fan, I think. I think you have yeah. to be a little invested. Yeah, yeah, but I think I think it's something maybe worth revisiting for me at this. I've only read it once, as I say, and I didn't particularly get on with it. But I think I hadn't, I didn't really remember this classified story very well, so I didn't realize how tied together they were and how it does sort of fit in with everything else Morrison was was doing at the time. So, yeah, I think worth a revisit. I mean, like, yeah, it's just like even ignoring the Shida. Um, even <laughs> who it, I love, it's just the, it's just the concept of of Quebec or or Quebec. Like I I just Morrison's had that in the tank for like years. Yeah, I think first first witness in um, Rock of Ages, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's in Wonderworld, isn't it? Which you know, three years ago today, that I think that very episode of JLA cast came yeah, out. Fair, fair play, <laughs> fair play. I mean, it's 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 kind of um, it's fascinating to me that like I don't believe DC have ever really revisited or used Wonderworld in a way. I don't think they've done anything with the Ultramarine Corps. No, like sinks. I, I guess. Well, frankly, when they own the license to the Authority and they don't seem to want to do anything with the Authority, then I guess why would you turn to the Ultramarine Corps? But like. I think they're they're compelling enough in this story in the hand of in the hands of Morrison to to make me want to give them a a bit more of a shake. I think the Ultramarine Corps are more victims of the the constant cycle of of rebooting the universe that DC are doing, like Kyle mm. Kyle Rayner, who just disappeared in the last reboot and hasn't. I think someone's doing a he's he appearing soon on a like they're doing a. Green Lantern series of special covers for books, which will show like various Green Lanterns and covers, and Kyle's on one of them. But Kyle hasn't been in an actual comic for for years, is my understanding, and just sort of forgotten about. And I think the Ultramarine Corps are victims of that as well. Oh, bless! Yeah, in 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 the same way that their Marvel are revisiting like the X Men cartoon, mm. and and they did like um, oh god, during the whole kind of Secret Wars thing yeah. not that secret war the other but jonathan war. hickman's secret war they they had that whole i don't know it was, it was all a bit it, was, it just felt like another pass at house of m but like the idea that the x-men 97 universe is still out there well and there's we're getting a new season of the x-men cartoon on disney plus this year we certainly are in fact uh jerry gaylord who did some artwork on the first volume of afterlife inc uh is working on that series Oh really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, I feel like I, 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 I'm, I, I have illustrious company. You know? I was like, oh, that's very cool. Anyway, my point is, is very could could DC just do for 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 the oldies like us? Could they just do JLA ninety seven and just yes. give us the Morrison universe in its own pocket series? Oh yes, please, yes, please. We'll write it. Me and John, we'll do that. We're available. I mean, I mean DC, I know you've been shy about contacting us because we seem so busy, but I assure you, <laughs> we'd clear we're not, space. <laughs> we're not. You know, <laughs> DC, if you pay me, I will quit my job to come and work for you and do writing. I'll yeah. do that. Heck, I think... I'll, uh, I'll take that hit. <laughs> heck, we, hey, maybe, PJ, maybe we just we settle for working in the canteen. Yeah, 
Yeah. And occasionally <laughs> occasionally telling people who wander in our ideas in the hopes they get made. Yeah. That's how did. it works. Yeah, we just we'd make a point of like delivering lunch every day to like editorial. Just to so like my Aztec story. <laughs> just to like casual Oh, what's this under under that sausage? Oh, it's a pitch for an Aztec reboot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> maybe this is the maybe this we've stumbled upon a solution here to please every generation of fan pj i i yeah. I, I don't want to pander but maybe like you can preserve you can have space for new ideas while also just going let's do a you know we'll have all these pocket series which just kind of keep the fans happy so the continuity can roll on but you can always revisit your justice league or your spider-man when you want yeah to. <laughs> it's worth a shot it's worth a shot worse stranger things have happened anyway they have um, but yeah, I mean, PJ, is there anything left to say? I, I, I've had a good time. This has been great. Me too. I, that, that was a brilliant issue. That was so good. It, it's, it's again, a, a writer and artist just working so well together to create something very special. Uh, yeah, couldn't, couldn't have said it better. Um, I love, I love the fact that, that just Batman seems to really like Beryl and Beryl seems <laughs> to really like Batman. I feel there's like a partnership there, which we never saw fully developed where, Going right back to New World Order, uh, issue two, when Batman says, he says to Superman, he says, I, I can't risk my life. I don't want to put my life in the hands of like unprofessional and unprepared people wearing capes. Yeah. So yeah. if Batman trusts you, I think that is the, the highest badge of honor. And also, at the end of the day, how can you not love a comic where Batman fly kicks a gorilla in the face? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 Batman ha- and Batman smiles, PJ. <laughs> yeah <laughs> ah bless we're all having fun here uh so have we said everything we need to say pj i think so just roll on issue three can't wait very excited um i guess uh, i should say a massive thank you to gav mitchell for drawing our cover artwork uh, and another massive thank you to elliot red for composing and performing our theme tune justice uh is there anything you'd like to shout about pj anything you'd like to say? nope nope Nope, same here. I am perfectly content in my world of of, of ape, ape aggression. So. <laughs> and on that note, PJ, uh, this has been a delight. Would you please see us off in your own unique fashion? Batman fly kicked the gorilla in the face. What more do you want from me, people? 